Welcome, everyone, to the Zojo Talk podcast. I am Paul Lefever, the Zojo developer evangelist. And this time on the podcast, I have special guest, Tom Ketchesides, founder of Light Blue Software. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much for inviting me onto the show, Paul. Awesome. I love having new guests. Uh, Tom and I met uh, a few years ago at one of the XDC conferences, if I recall correctly. And Tom, why don't you uh, take a brief moment to do our usual intro of the podcast and tell us a little bit about how you came to start using Zojo and what you use it for. Uh, absolutely. So I run a little company called uh, Lightly Software. Uh, it was myself and my, my colleague Hamish set up the company uh, about seven years ago. Um, my background was um, actually in photography. So I set up a photography business uh, soon after graduating from university. Uh, at the time, that was a part-time business that I was running alongside a full-time software development job. And uh, naturally, as nerds with programming skills do, you write tools to help you run your, you know, do your job. Um, so I started running, um, started writing business management tools to help me run my fledgling business. Uh, as my photography business grew, so did the software. And uh, eventually I basically got sick of friends asking whether they could use this and uh, decided to see whether I could set up a business around it. Um, I got my colleague Hamish involved at that point. Uh, originally, that was based in Pharmaca Pro. Yes, so, I remember you. When we talked years ago, I remember you telling me that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it was something I I knew at the time. It's something I had at the time. Um, and when we launched the business, we did it with very little expectation as to whether it would actually go anywhere. Um, I remember the moments soon after we launched it and uh, we had our first sale and Hamish turned around to me and said, this is the worst possible situation for a business to be in, in that we have a customer and we now have to support that customer, but we don't yet have a viable business. So, um, so it basically grew from there. Uh, it turned out to, to be successful. Um, but very soon we started coming up against what we perceived as the limitations of Farmaker. Uh, just to be clear, I think that Farmaker is awesome for certain purposes, um, for creating the most powerful possible database-based desktop software you can and creating products that are easy for your customers to use and easy for you to support. I don't think it necessarily fits that bill. Um, but I'd been keeping an eye on what was then Real Studio for quite a while. Um, it came up in various different reviews. Um, I'd always thought that looks interesting, um, especially the, the business model that you folks used as well. Um, fitted in very nicely with the kind of business where we have a vertical vertical market product right. um, and uh, that we hopefully sell lots of copies of. Um, and uh, eventually it got to the point where I basically had sat Hamish down and tried to convince him to throw away what was probably at the time about three years of work and investments into FileMaker um, and rebuild our entire products in Zojo. Wow! Yeah, that's uh, that's quite a uh, leap of faith. Awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it, it, there was a certain amount of experimentation and um, uh, and testing along the way, um, and certainly, um, yeah, there was definitely a sort of an exploratory period. It probably right. took us about eighteen months from the point at which we thought, right, okay, we're definitely going to go ahead and do this, to the point where we actually released. Um, for sale, the first version of Light Blue that was completely written in Zojo. Um, 
And that probably took longer than it would if we were working on it full time. But of course, we had an existing product to sell. Um, we couldn't really tell our customers about the new project we were working on. Um, so we had to sort of carry on selling and supporting that while um, rebuilding everything and setting up the infrastructure for the new product. Wow, that's that's a big undertaking for what sounds like a very small group of of people. Absolutely, it was it was um, only the two of us, and at the time, we were both kind of working in the business part time. In I was still working as a photographer, um, probably splitting my time roughly fifty fifty. Um, Hamish was working as a graphic designer as well, um, so yeah, it was pretty demanding. Um, I think for us, the, the timing was very good in that um, this was when um, the Coco framework was uh, sort of in beta. Um, so that was a really good time for us to come on board because it meant that we were able to basically plunge straight into that, knowing that by the time we actually released the product, it would be out of beta. Um, but mean, it meant that we were able to just dive straight into that without having to worry about, okay, we've got to write all of this um, for the, the old um, frameworks, carbon, wasn't it? Um, sorry, my memory's terrible. I'm forgetting already. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, having to yeah, do whatever was necessary to convert that to Cocoa, we could just plunge straight in um, and send you guys lots of uh, feedback reports. <laughs> That's great. That's, uh, so what would be some of the major things that you, limitations you were running into with FileMaker that you were uh, able to use Zojo to kind of circumvent or... Um, really good question. Um, if I had a couple of minutes to think about that, I'd probably come up with uh, a much more detailed answer. But I, off the top of my head, I think there were two main areas, Paul, um, where we were struggling. Uh, the first of all was uh, in terms of user interface, um, installation, and so on. Um, obviously, with Zojo, you're building applications that use native controls and you have a lot of power, especially with things like the list box and the canvas control. You can do some very, very powerful and interesting things with that right. that you wouldn't be able to approach using something like FileMaker without extensive use of plugins or possibly writing your own plugins, at which point you're probably starting to get away from the point of using a product like FileMaker in the first place. Um, and then secondly, uh, the networking model was a huge obstacle for us. Um, during the last year or 18 months or so of um, offering our FileMaker-based product, we had various larger customers who wanted to use our product on multiple machines. And the only way of achieving that in FileMaker, well, sorry, the only practical way of achieving that in FileMaker was using a server client model. Um, and for the kind of prices that we were selling our products at, it was not feasible for us to set up servers for each customer and support all of that. Um, and we rapidly discovered that although it is theoretically possible to have FileMaker server running um, on a server that you connect to over an internet connection, it's just not pretty in, in lots of different ways. Right. Um, so one of the key things that led us down the Zojo route was that we wanted to build native Mac OS X and Windows applications, build our own server infrastructure, and then create our own ways of communicating between them. Um, and for our customers, because we're addressing the professional photography market and lots of photographers like to be able to access our system when they don't have an internet connection, being able to store your data locally and then write a synchronization system that then syncs with our server infrastructure was very, very important to us. And, okay, 
you might have been able to achieve something close to that with FileMaker, but it wouldn't have been pretty from a developer's point of view, and it certainly wouldn't perform anywhere near as well as we've managed to make Sojo perform. All right, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we, we get a lot of inquiries from people that have used FileMaker for things over the years, and essentially you know, often the projects do reach a point of sophistication, maturity, where you know they're, they're hitting a lot of the limitations of FileMaker, and we get mm. a lot of people now that are... You know, they look at Zojo and say, oh, you know, maybe it's time to do something along the lines of what you did. And, uh, and you know, that's nerve-wracking for anybody. I mean, to rebuild a product they already have that works, that they're selling. That's absolutely. A, that's a tough business decision. It's a tough decision no matter what. And uh, Absolutely. I've, I've read in several places that rewriting your product is something that software developers must never, ever do. Well, it's something that it's something that all software developers want to do. I mean, if you pull a software yes. developer, they're like, the only way to fix this is to rewrite it from scratch. It's just too awful. Yeah. And uh, but you also hear that that's that's that may be their first thing, but that's not always the best choice. Uh, there's usually alternatives or something else to consider, or you want to understand why you want to do that. You don't just want to rewrite it just for the sake of rewriting it because you, quote, think you can do it better. You want to have real practical reasons that make it beneficial for doing a rewrite. Absolutely. And from our point of view, at the time, we were looking at the amount of technical debt we racked up um, using FileMaker already. Uh, and we knew that if we wanted to have a, a really long-term viable business, um, we would have to get rid of that before it scaled to the point where it would become very, very hard to move away. Yeah, and the other thing we hear about FileMaker uh, from people looking at Zojo is just how expensive more recently FileMaker appears to have gotten. I don't uh, follow it too, too closely, but it appears their licensing costs have gone up quite a bit, particularly for some of the server stuff. That makes it hard for people that are selling things because now either they have to pass on this really high FileMaker cost down to the client or the customer, right. which makes their product no longer look as competitive perhaps as it might otherwise be. So that, that becomes a, I mean, certainly if you're building consulting solutions or in-house stuff, that maybe is less of a concern, but if you're trying to sell software that I can imagine that starts to become a problem. So what you said, professional software. So how do people use this software? What do they use it for? What type of people use it? Uh, so we make a product for professional photographers. Um, it's, it's marketed as business software. And essentially, we try to bring as much of the back office side of running a photography business together into our system because we think that once you bring all of that information together into one place, we can do really uh, interesting things to help photographers run their business more efficiently and grow their business as well. Um, so it's essentially a combination of CRM, project management, finance and asset management all within one system with everything hooked together behind the scenes. Um, as far as our customers are concerned, the reason that they love it is that because it's designed specifically for photographers, it's designed using the kind of language, the kind of terms, uh, the kind of metaphors that um, they become familiar with very quickly. Um, and from our point of view, even though we're sort of addressing a very specific niche, um, because it's a small company, that means it gives us something that we can focus our sales and marketing on a relatively small market there. Um, whereas, you know, our products, it would be technically very easy for us to create a much more generic system. Um, but it's, it's a much larger challenge from the, the sales and marketing side. Right. Well, I mean, the, you're describing the, the, 
the things every business has to figure out for themselves is, you know, who their market is. Cause you, you don't want to say your market is everyone that that's kind of usually a disaster for most businesses is, you know, market is everyone, you know, then you've got, you know, this random smattering of people and your product is not fine tuned for any of them. And, uh, nobody's happy. And, and it, and like you said, it's too hard for marketing. It's, you know, too hard for sales. So focusing on a niche is really nice. And you got the domain experience in the photography business. So that allows Absolutely. you to build. Yeah, yeah. And when you're building stuff like that, having that domain experience in my, in my experience is, is just key because people like to use software that they feel is built for their needs, not just grab some generic piece of software off the shelf and use it or make it fit the way they work that, that people get frustrated by that. So. Absolutely, yes. And and also by the time you go generic, you also get start to get compared to some much, much larger competitors as well. Um, so there's no way that we could throw the resources that, for example, Sage could um, at a producing business software. Um, but by going very, very narrow, then we can make sure that we can address the concerns of that particular market at the moment. Right. Yeah, and that's a, it's a great way to build a business because, you know, a company like Sage, for example, will largely ignore to some extent, you know, smaller companies that, you know, as they grow, as Sage grows larger, we don't got to worry about the little guy. We can focus on the, the big wig. Absolutely. Yeah, our, so, our market would be a rounding error. <laughs> right. And those rounding errors can be very significant, successful niche businesses for small companies to absolutely grab onto. So always something for, you know, developers to keep an eye on. It's like, ooh, what happens here? And you, and you do see that all the time where developers maybe work for a larger company and kind of jumped off to do their own thing because they saw maybe something they could tap into that the company they worked for was ignoring or maybe was tangential to it or something like that. But Yeah, yeah. And something else which I think has been very important to the development of our company is um, is something that you hear quite a lot when um, you, you read ideas about um, startups is um, wanting to actually build products that you want to use yourself. And, and certainly in the, the early years of the company, that was hugely important. Um, and it's always slightly icky, but the term eating your own dog food uh, very much comes into it. Um, in that you want to produce something which is, uh, is going to do the best possible job for yourself. Um, and it's actually something I regret about having to give up my own photography business, is that I don't actually get to use our product very much. Yeah, in anger, as it were. Um, and, you know, the, the times I do get to do it in situations where I actually have to use it for business-related stuff rather than just sort of testing and marketing purposes. Um, yeah, that's, it's always nice to go back. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I don't know where that term, I think that eating your own dog food term came from Microsoft maybe, which wouldn't surprise me. They have the knack for spitting out things that are just socially awkward. Uh <laughs> And, and that is just a weird thing because, you know, just people that make dog food don't eat it to test it. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it can be quite tasty, but um, I've got, yeah, no intent of trying it. So, yeah, it just, it, it, you know, as a phrase, it makes no sense. As a concept, well, sure, using the stuff you make is always excellent. I mean, it, Absolutely. You, you, get, you guys do that. We do that, yeah, and uh, and uh, which is great. Uh, but, I mean, like. I like to tell people, you know, software development tool can produce infinity of applications. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, we use it, but, you know, we don't make, uh, you know, a CRM system that tracks stuff like you do. So there's going to be parts of Zojo that we won't test, even though we're using it to make Zojo. So sure. it's always great to have all these other customers that are building such a wide 
you know, varying types of software products to just to see all the cool things that that Zojo makes for them. And that you're like, oh, I never would have thought someone would do something like that. That's interesting. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> and then, then I find them and get them on a podcast. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so backgrounds, you said you have a photography background. Um, programming wise, you do coding though, of course. Yep. Yep. So tell us a little bit about that background. Uh, so, well, it depends how far you want to go back. Uh, <laughs> to the uh, beginning of time. Sorry? To the beginning of time, no. <laughs> to the beginning of time, okay. Well, uh, oh, well, we start to get into religion and politics here, don't we? And that's probably best avoided. So <laughs> tell you what, I'll, I'll skip forward to um, at least a period of time when I'm alive. Um, uh, so, and it all happened by accident. Um, I took a year out of education before university and uh, kind of needed to get a job. Um, so at the time, um, I had no experience of programming, um, but I was kind of into Macs and computers in general, but Macs in specific. Um, and I saw a, a local company advertising a job for a hardware engineer, uh, an Apple hardware engineer. So I basically wrote to them and said, I have absolutely no qualifications that are relevant. Can I please have a job? Um, and uh, amazingly, they gave me a job um, and put me on a support desk um, for six months, um, which is an amazing way of learning an awful lot about a lot of different systems because you have to get to grips with all of them when they break. Um, and then the farmmaker stuff basically grew out of that. So starting to, to help customers with um, problems related to that. And then after graduating, I went back to the same company, carried on doing farmmaker stuff. And um, their, well, their main projects were uh, 4D projects. Um, and to be honest, I'm not even sure whether 4D is still around. I think they are. Um, but that was sort of my, my first real experience of building bespoke systems for clients um, using rapid application development tools. Um, and yeah, I think that was sort of roughly the time when I first came across Real Studio um, as it was back then. Um, because one of the, the real drawbacks of 4D is that certainly at the time is the business model was not at all suited to um, the kind of sort of vertical market system where you want to, to sell relatively cheap licenses to a lot of customers. Mm. Um, if you're building bespoke systems for larger clients, then that was great. Uh, and you could do a lot of powerful things with it. Um, but in terms of what you could do in terms of building, first of all, native applications and also having a business model that suited vertical markets didn't really suit us. All right. That makes sense. Now you had said your app is running on windows and OS 10, right? At the moment. Yes. Yes. Um, seem to be iOS Zojo as well yes um we have an ios app at the moment um we contracted the development of that out at the same point at which we were doing the the big zojo rewrites um several years ago um but unfortunately that has stagnated we've, we've had to switch developers a couple of times um and so basically as soon as zojo announced its ios intentions that became really really interesting to us um, and uh, it's only in the last few months we've actually been able to turn our attention to that properly and start bringing that in-house. 
Well, that that would explain your flurry of feedback requests on that. Okay. <laughs> oh, you've seen some of those then. <laughs> no, just just to be clear, I, I think the um, the iOS framework, the work that you've done, um, is absolutely amazing. For us, one of the enormous benefits of Zojo, um, and I'm sure you must hear this a lot, is that it means that we can address a much a much much larger market than we could um, without. Um, cross-platform tools because you know we're, we're a small team we're building a relatively complicated product um, most of our customers are mac based but probably about 25 percent of them are windows based if we didn't have zojo we'd be basically faced with the idea of having to abandon the windows market because we probably wouldn't be able to justify developing um, a windows app from scratch um, so that would annoy a lot of our customers, um, and it would also mean that we're, we're leaving a lot of money on the table. Um, but the, the key advantage for us with bringing the iOS development in-house is we can effectively copy and paste all of the business logic from the desktop app. Um, now, of course, it's not quite that simple because we're moving across to the new Zojo framework at the same time. But right. compared to rewriting it all in Cocoa or Swift, um, it's, it's an enormous time saving for us um, and it means that as we go forward and make tweaks to the desktop app it will be very very easy to bring that across into the ios app it'll be the same people doing it using more or less exactly the same business logic yeah and you're right we do hear that from a lot of people that you know they feel they can compete with uh organizations that are much larger than they are because they're able to use zojo and it can you know spit out these different types of apps more easily than you know the other you know so-called cross-platform tools that are out there that you know I like <laughs> I like to joke about but you know they all let you do something like that but they all require a tremendous amount of work to put into it as well and Zojo is just a lot easier often you just you know check a few boxes here and here like you said on Windows and Mac and then all of a sudden you've got two builds sure you can tweak them for each one but you don't have to do two separate branches of work that might you know Absolutely. require their own teams so. Absolutely. And those other cross-platform tools are often not producing native applications either, or sort of not applications that are using native controls and fit into those operating systems quite so neatly. Yep. Yep. So that, that's good. And yeah, you know, Zojo covers a lot at this point and uh, iOS is still very new, but uh, one of the things that is planned for some pretty good enhancements this year. So stay tuned for that. Absolutely. I'm keeping everything crossed here. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> And uh, I know our beta testers are going to be all over that when that's available. Yeah, one thing I heard you say before was uh, your your programming career kind of almost happened by accident. And it, it's kind of funny because I, I kind of hear that from a lot of people is how they – people that are using Zojo aren't necessarily, you know, professionally trained software developers. We have, we have a large portion of people that use Zojo are programmers by accident, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, – I always am fascinated by that because I'm not a programmer by accident. I am, you know, a trained programmer. I've, you know, pretty much since I was like 10 years old and I learned to program and knew that's all I wanted to do. And, you know, I went to college for it. It's been doing all my career. So these other people that started doing other things and they just kind of picked up programming by accident is always fascinating to me. I don't, I don't know that I, there's things that I've picked up by accident like that. And it seems to me programming is a, almost a tricky enough thing that that would be pretty hard to do. There's some serious commitment, dedication, interest. It's just, I, I'm always fascinated by that. It seems like I'm always picking up on people. So 
Well, it's, it's, it's a constant learning process for all of us, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure you have a much more rigorous um, theoretical framework to build upon. Um, but I'm sure that most of us are drawn to it by that constant process of learning um, and also the thrill of you know, knowing that by the end of the day, you created something that didn't exist when you got up and got to your desk in the morning. That um, right there is probably the, the grab for just about everybody at this point that makes software, I think. It's, it's the creative urge. Yeah, yeah. Because that's certainly the first. I remember the first time I saw a program. It was, you know, rinky-dink basic program, I think. It said 10 print Paul, 20 go to 10. And, you know, and it was on, the computer was hooked to a TV screen, and my name just scrolled on the TV screen. And I was just like mouth wide open going, oh, my God, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And, you know, hounded my dad for months. Get us a computer. And... uh I was just like, and then, you know, and yeah, you sit down at a blank, you know, you open up Zojo, you get a blank project there, and then you just start making something. And then next thing you know, you've got something that didn't exist before. It is a fun feeling. I can see why people uh, get sucked into that. So that is, uh, that is pretty neat. So you have a, a partner, you said, uh, and I'm trying to get the name. You told me how to pronounce the name before. It was, uh, <laughs> how go on, say? give it a go. Uh, no pressure. Hamish? Oh! No, I was not supposed to say the age, right? So it's, um, it's one of the funniest things we found when we, we went to XDC in Vegas a couple of years ago. Um, my surname, Catracides, um, lots of people get the pronunciation wrong, especially because the part of London I live in, there's a big uh, kind of Greek and Turkish community around here, and lots of people assume it's pronounced Catracides, um, where it's just pronounced in a very boring non-exotic way. Um, Hamish is not a particularly common name in Britain, but it's quite a stereotypical Scottish name. Hamish isn't actually Scottish himself. He just has a Scottish name. Um, And I think he found it slightly distressing when we went to Vegas, and I find it absolutely hilarious that everyone pronounced it Hamish instead. (laughs) It's it's normally me who gets the mispronunciation, you see. So uh, it was quite strange to see that happening to someone else. Yeah, well, I'm certainly, I mean, Nowadays, all the Zojo people know how to pronounce my name because, you know, I do these podcasts and webinars and I say my name all the time. So people hear me say Lefever. I love your podcast anyway, but if nothing else, it's great because it means I know how to pronounce your surname when I see you, Paul. (laughs) But yeah, I I pronounce it Lefever, which much like you said, is kind of the boring, you know, English way to take a more exotic name. And, you know, Lefever is obviously a French name. And it was funny, just uh, just last week I had come across this website, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, I don't have it off the top of my head, but it let you research surnames, last names, and mm. tell you how popular they are in the world kind of thing, in various countries and stuff like that. And uh, the name Lefevre, you know, people around here in the U.S. always, you know, look at me with, you know, head tilted, like, I've, what is that? That's a weird name. And it's not super popular name in the United States. If you go to Canada, though, it starts to show up higher in the rankings and if you go to france it is really high in the rankings the uh the number one name in france i think when i looked on this website was martin or martin i guess i don't know how to pronounce it in french but uh (laughs) and lefevre was i think it was number 13 and then there was a an alternative spelling that had an accent over one of the characters i think dropped the b so it would have been more like Lefebvre or something like that. And if you combine those two, which they're essentially the same name, just uh, spelled with one letter difference, it would have been number two 
common name in France. So, oh wow! I and I'm not too surprised. Is my my Twitter handle is just at Lefevre, which you know I, I'm pretty happy that I got the actual Lefevre surname as my Twitter handle because yeah, yeah. I joined Twitter pretty early on. But it means that I get a lot of people <laughs> who, who tweet at me in French, <laughs> assuming I am someone I am not. <laughs> ah, and how is your French? My French is. Poor at best. I know a few words, words, and I can string together. You know, I do je ne parle français. I don't even know if I got that right, but that's me in French saying I don't speak French. Um, I, I, as long I, as you can swipe that on Twitter, you're good. Yeah. So when I get the stuff on Twitter, I often have no idea what it is. I think there's someone in France-ish that is a politician with the last name Lefevre, and oh. uh, so I often will get like an article. And someone's like replying to him or sending him or talk, trying to talk to him. And, but they just put at Lefevre and it comes to me. And now I just have a stand. I do reply to these people because, you know, obviously the thing didn't go to whom they intended it to. So I always reply and say, wrong Lefevre, I think. And I'm hoping that if they don't speak English, they might be able to figure out what I meant there. But often they will like delete the tweet and then redo it the right way. But I get several of those a week. And so you never know. Well, I'm lucky that there aren't any uh, other famous Tom Catcher sites. Um, <laughs> in the in the UK, we have a, a chain of department stores called John Lewis, and um, the last several years, they've made it a bit of a name for themselves with um, very popular Christmas TV ads. And there's um, some poor chap on Twitter who actually has at John Lewis as his username. And, of course, around about that time of year, he gets thousands upon thousands of mentions and then just has to patiently explain to everyone that, no, he's not actually a department store. He's just a guy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I mean, certainly, you know, if, like, this French politician dude, you know, decided he wanted to purchase my Twitter handle from me for large sums of money, (laughs) you know, if you're listening, I'm open to that. (laughs) (laughs) Talk, get in touch. <laughs> if that if that will help his career in any way, you know. Not that I know anything about the guy, but uh, apparently he speaks French, and that's it. It's not. I'm not... <laughs> but you know, we we uh, Stefan, you know, whose last name Pinel, I think uh, another French name I'm butchering. You know, he's in France. He's you know, and uh, you know he certainly can pronounce my last name way better than I can. And, <laughs> And he, and he said, oh, yeah, very common name out there. So uh, it's funny. Always funny. Names, uh, magical thing. So before we started the podcast, uh, Tom and I were talking, and it came up that we both have a connected history in old Atari ST computers. <laughs> yes. Uh, which is always fascinating to me. I, you know, I, I, as everyone that's listening to the podcast perhaps knows, I, you know, I'm a, a retro computer kind of guy and i like talking about this old stuff and i always like it when i run to someone that used you know one of these old atari computers because i was atari computer guy back in the day i didn't use Macs in the early days and i didn't use any of those commodores or anything like that and atari computers back in the day were not really all that popular (laughs) no no it was um among my friends um the people who got computers early uh got the the bbc yeah um I don't know whether, whether they actually got exported to the United States or not. No, I've read about them in magazines and stuff, but I've never seen one. Yeah, I mean, they, they were basically set up, a, set up as an educational project. Um, lots of them um, went to, to schools, uh, including primary schools, which is where I first saw them. Um, and then kind of like the wave after that, if your family didn't get a BBC, 
um, but they got on to like the next wave of computers. They tended to buy um, Amigas because, of course, you had games for them. Right, um, yeah. Big <laughs> I think my parents decided to go for the Atari ST because there were slightly fewer games. Um, <laughs> yeah, there was still plenty for me. Yeah, yeah, it was the same sort of thing here. I mean, not that either the Amiga or the ST were popular, super popular in the U.S. I mean, at that point, I mean, I would say DOS machines were the popular thing at the time, even mm. more than like Macs or anything like that. But Amigas, I think, were definitely more popular than STs here in the U.S., primarily because of the game thing. Um, I just remembered why my dad wanted the Atari ST. I can't remember, um, because it had MIDI ports. Yes, yes, absolutely. He definitely had ambitions to plug it into a keyboard and record music, and uh, somehow we grew up as musical geniuses. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Yeah, I had uh, I had uh, friends after I got my ST that had a uh, they were you know budding musicians, guitar playing and stuff, and they had a drum machine that had MIDI ports in it. And I remember <laughs> we brought it over, hooked it up to my uh, ST, and you know had I forget what the some sort of sequencing software you could program your drum loops and stuff like that and. They were just like, oh, my God, this is awesome. You know, because back then the equipment, you know, barely could record enough steps for a whole song or anything like that by itself. But <laughs> So you could uh, do it. But I, I personally have no musical ability whatsoever. So the MIDI ports were of no interest to me other than technically, you know, you could use them for some very rudimentary networking uh, huh? if you wanted to do that. But my big thing was just I, I use computers for programming. Duh, right? And uh, and the ST had this really high resolution for the time, 640 by 400 black and white display <sighs> that was just, you know, rock solid, paper white, and was great for coding on. Whereas the Amiga had a color display that was great for gaming on, but, you know, it was a little fuzzy and blinky and not quite as great for typing. And uh, and the Amiga, in the U.S. at least, was quite a bit more expensive, almost twice as much, I think. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah. So I was like, you know, ST's fast, got a cool display, it's, it has all the compilers and stuff I want. That's, that's the computer I want. See, I hardly ever played games on the thing. I didn't have a color display for it for years. But yeah, I, I fondly remember my ST. I still have running on my Mac today. I have a folder with an Atari ST emulator. Awesome. Yeah. And I can fire it up there with various versions of the Atari ST operating system. I have a lot of the apps I used to have are in that folder. Many of the apps I made are actually still in this folder I can run. And it's, it's just hilarious. You know, you know, I'll only fire it up like once or twice a year because you get this, you might read an article like, oh, yeah, I'm going to fire up the emulator and you try it. And then you're like, oh, God, thank, I'm glad I don't have to use this anymore. <laughs> So what was the, the last program that you created on the Atari ST that you used via one of these emulators? Sorry, I'm interviewing you now, aren't I? Yeah, exactly. That's this great. Is fascinating. That's great. Let's see. The one, uh, I made two programs that were relatively popular on the Atari ST. The first one was a free program. I called it Jumpstart. And it was essentially an app launcher. And I wrote it in Pascal. And it was designed to, you know, at the time with the ST, you could have, you know, well, you know, it used floppy disks, of course. And you could put this jumpstart program on a floppy disk, set it to auto boot, and it would come up with this fancier screen to show the apps that were on the disk. And you could just kind of tap button and it would launch them. You didn't have to double click, open a window, navigate to the right thing, any of that stuff. So that was a freeware app that I made that was kind of a learning app for me to learn Pascal and app distribution and stuff like that. 
But I, that was free. But I remember I got letters from people all over the world that used it. They just wrote me a letter and said they liked it, which was kind of cool back then. You know, because it was email wasn't super common. So I actually got, you know, envelope, you opened it up, and, and there's a letter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if someone's gone to the effort of posting you a letter to say thank you. That's... Yeah, so that was always cool. And then after that, because that was well enough received, I actually made a shareware program for the ST that was uh, – used with online services. So, you know, back then, this would have been pre-internet days. There were online services like uh, CompuServe. Everyone maybe has heard of CompuServe. There were two other ones that were lesser known. One was called Delphi, and the other one was called Genie. And Genie, the G and the E, were referenced to General Electric because they owned it at the time. Go figure. Uh, we make refrigerators and an online service. But... Uh, so they had these two online services, and I made essentially a front end to them because at the time there was no internet, no broadband to connect to these things. Use phone lines, and it was expensive. You know, you're talking six to twelve dollars per hour to access these things. So I made an app that essentially you would put together all your stuff to queue up what you wanted, and then you would, it would do a schedule. So then you leave your computer on in the middle of the night. It would log in, connect to the service, grab your email, pull it all down grab the list of files that you had identified, download those, grab the forum messages in the chapters and pull those down. And then you get up in the morning and all that stuff would be sitting on your computer and you could read through it and you wouldn't be online anymore. So it would, you know, lower your costs of online computing substantially. And that was Absolutely. my first uh, shareware product that I made for the ST. And that one sold pretty good. I remember when I did it at the time, my goal was to make one month's rent, but I think I made like a year's rent out of it. So that was good. You, you should resurrect this project, Paul, and market it as a productivity tool. I mean, imagine how productive you'd be if you cut yourself off from the internet entirely and uh, <laughs> only had to do with emails once a day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think a lot of people would get the shakes or something though, but... <laughs> But yeah, so those are my two ST programs. But the the online thing, I cert you can't run it now anymore. None of those services exist. Um, the uh, the other program still works, and uh, and I made other. I think I made a chat program that let you type in a chat window or something like that. I don't remember. I'd have to dig in my folder. But yeah, all that stuff was written in like Pascal or C at the time. I used to collect C compilers, lots of C. so many C compilers, all subtly different in syntax and stuff. It was weird. Weird, weird times back then. <laughs> and then now, uh, running Macintosh and Windows, and that all works for me. I like it. And it's hard to believe, you know, like I said, when you fire up those emulators, I mean, the grand 640 by 400 display I had on the ST is a tiny little postage stamp on my... <laughs> retina displayed absolutely especially i guess if you're using a high-res screen of some description yeah yeah it's just it's just tiny you know that's that's an that's smaller than an icon on ios <laughs> and <laughs> so yeah, i mean it's you got to run these things like you know quadruple displays just so you can see them yeah absolutely well i suppose it reminds you how good we we've got things these days yeah well and that's the thing you got to remember is you know we've got things really good these days i mean I, you know, taking it back to Zojo, making an app with Zojo. Oh my God, it, it is so much faster and easier than back in those days when you had to write up your everything from scratch. I mean, you wanted to process the events in your GUI app. You had to write your own event loop, grab the system messages, route that stuff off to the appropriate things. And there were no frameworks or anything that would simplify that. So every app you started had all this boilerplate code that was just kind of in your way all the time. <laughs> And there were no GUI designers. You had to design, you know, the UI 
often by hand in code, which, you know, the first time you do that, you're like, oh, that's exciting. But after you do that a few times, you're like, argh, I hate this. <laughs> oh, yeah, crazy times. So uh, we're reaching the end of this podcast. And one thing I like to bring up for people uh, is kind of our token little Zojo advertisement, if you will, during the podcast is Zojo Developer Conference 2016 is coming up in October in Houston, Texas. And if you like these podcasts, you like hearing about the people I'm talking with, well, you might be wondering, Paul, how do you know these people? Well, I don't just randomly stumble upon them. I probably met them at an XDC conference and spent lots of time talking to them there as well. So if you want to meet and chat with all these fun people, come to XDC. Heck, you will probably even be one of the fun people that I end up chatting with and get on a podcast later. So XTC 2016, I'll have links in the show notes for how you can read about the sessions and how to register and all that fun stuff. But hopefully I will see you there. And Tom, thank you for being on Zojo Talk. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It, yeah, been a pleasure talking to you, Paul. Have a great day, everyone.